0: You're listening to an episode of the C-19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States in the long 19th century. We are an official production of C-19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individuals' employers, nor the official opinions of C-19. In the summer of 1860, Theophilus Packard decided, on his authority as a husband, that his wife Elizabeth was insane. To begin with, she raised objections during his Calvinist Bible class. To make matters worse, she refused to sign over a deed to some real estate that he wanted to sell. According to Theophilus, her scientific education had deviled her reasoning faculties, and as her husband, he had had enough. On the morning of June 18th, he gathered two physicians from his Bible class and the sheriff. At dawn, the four men used an axe to break down Elizabeth's door. Only partially dressed, Elizabeth hid under her sheets while one of the physicians took her pulse which she admitted was racing a little. With that bit of compelling evidence, a quick impulse as men beat down her bedroom door, Elizabeth was officially declared insane. When their wagon pulled up to the asylum, Elizabeth refused to participate in her own imprisonment. Show yourself to this crowd just as you are, she told Theophilus, my persecutor instead of my protector. As the men lifted her out of the wagon, Elizabeth instructed the sheriff not to hold her hoop skirt in a way that would leave her indecently exposed. At her request, the men linked their arms into a basket and carried Elizabeth into her indefinite incarceration. Once admitted to the hospital, Elizabeth asked the presiding doctor for an examination, hoping to prove that she was sane. The doctor replied, Of course you are insane, or you would not have been received at this hospital. Elizabeth Parsons Ware Packard spent three years in that hospital and a subsequent stint of time locked in a room of Theophilus' home. Baffled by the ease with which Theophilus exacted his revenge on her through institutionalization, once free, Packard dedicated her life to advocating for women's rights in marriage and for the humane treatment of psychiatric patients. She founded the Anti Insane Asylum Society and wrote a two volume, 800 page memoir of her experience called Modern Persecution published in 1873. She then took her husband to trial, where a jury declared her legally sane. The Illinois law under which she was incarcerated, however, still stood. It read, Married women and infants who, in the judgment of the medical superintendent, are evidently insane or distracted may be entered or detained in the hospital on the request of the husband of the woman or the guardian of the infant without the evidence of insanity required in other cases. Married women, like infants, had no legal protections or recourse if their husbands decided life would be more convenient with them out of the way. Elizabeth Parsons Ware Packard was persistent, but she was also exceptionally fortunate. Her education, her whiteness, and her neurotypicality meant that she could take her case to court. Deeply aware of all the women she had left behind, Packard spent the rest of her life as an anti-asylum advocate. I'm Leanna Glu, a PhD candidate in the English department at Penn State University. I came to the story of the Packards from the intersection of disability studies and 19th century American literature. Memoirs like Packards caught my interest as examples of patient self-advocacy in medicine. The experience and practice of forced institutionalization has a lot to teach us about patient agency in medicine, the roles of class and gender in psychiatric practice, and women's rights in marriage in the 19th century. In this episode, I pair the moment of incarceration from the memoirs of two patients-turned-advocates, Elizabeth Packard and Lydia Smith, with an archival find, the forms that patients and guardians would fill out upon intake at the Dixmont Hospital for the Insane in Pittsburgh. Like Packard and Smith's narratives, the Dixmont Hospital paperwork shows us just how privileged a husband's word or a doctor's discretion could be. When patriarchal authority figures like Theophilus Packard were left to interpret the category insane or decide whether a patient should be incarcerated, they often made their decision based on their own financial convenience and growing eugenic logics of social hygiene, protecting the normal from the abnormal. As these memoirs and forms show, those in power at psychiatric hospitals took advantage of broad categories and relaxed laws to make decisions that were personally profitable and upheld their own dominance. Gaps were built into the system of institutionalization, granting husbands and doctors that discretionary power. While many workers and reformers advocated for equitable treatment in asylums, it's in these discretionary gaps that patriarchal and eugenic logics broke through like weeds sprouting up through the cracks of a sidewalk. In theorizing bureaucracy and workers' power of discretion, I'm indebted to Celeste Watkins Hayes' work on race and class and the practice of welfare policy. As advocates like Packard knew, the 19th century diagnostic category of insane cast a wide net, catching a mass of disenfranchised Americans. Many husbands, neighbors, and doctors, like Theophilus Packard, took advantage of the category to gain power over those who breached the boundaries of the norm. The category insane was so capacious that physicians could only agree on three things, according to asylum reformer Thomas Story Kirkbride. One, insanity affects the mind. Two, it reflects a mental unsoundness. And three, it manifests more in an individual's actions than his speech. This obviously leaves open an enormous medico-juridical question with regard to interpretation and diagnosis, and the power to answer it lay in the hands of physicians, husbands, neighbors, and religious figures. This often led to the forced institutionalization of ideological or religious dissenters. Female, working class, disabled, uneducated, recently immigrated, African-American, and homeless patients were particularly precarious as they fell outside of the white, non-disabled, middle-class male norm. As an aside, I'll be talking about texts written by patients and ex-patients. I want to be clear that I have no intention of psychoanalyzing these authors. I approach each text without suspicion, inhabiting the role of listener rather than diagnostician, and putting these works in conversation with human rights and disability justice writers throughout history. Often, a patient's writing turns the power dynamics of a diagnostic encounter on its head. For example, remarking on the inability of doctors to define insanity, the editor of a patient-authored newspaper, The Meteor, which was circulated throughout the Alabama Insane Hospital, asks a fellow patient, What's insanity? The man replies, why? It's something that gets the matter with a fellow and makes him go crazy. Patient writing often bypasses professional experts to make diagnosis a dialogue. Authors will ask readers to decide for themselves, insisting that the reader come to a different conclusion than the doctors did. As we'll see in the Dixmont files, this dialogue between writer and reader, patient and diagnostician, was in absolute opposition to the imperious bureaucratic practices of diagnosis. Before I get to those texts, though, a little historical context about the rise and fall of asylums in the U.S. might be helpful. Psychiatric institutions were intended by their designers as a response to the 18th century's neglect and abuse of people with mental illnesses. By the early 19th century, theories that cast insanity as a disease of the mind were prevalent, but a concentrated effort to humanely treat people with psychiatric disabilities did not begin in earnest until the middle of the century. Until then, families and police often incarcerated people whose behavior suggested psychiatric disability in jails and almshouses for the poor. In the 1840s, reformers like Dorothea Dix and Thomas Story Kirkbride began to notice the contradictions between developing theories of psychiatry and the treatment of people with psychiatric disabilities. They wrote, designed, and advocated for a total institution that would bring patients peace and cure with sunny bedrooms, garden walks, and idyllic wooded settings. Doctors and architects were convinced that this was a worthwhile and humane project, and asylums proliferated rapidly throughout the second half of the 19th century. These utopian fantasies quickly became the sites of notorious overcrowding, abuse, and neglect. Back wards and dungeon-like basements replaced the sunny bedrooms and garden walks. Further, those seeking incarceration for their loved ones demonstrated different needs than Kirkbride anticipated. Kirkbride imagined that patients would find cure in the asylum and return home to their welcoming families. However, Constance McGovern's work on the Pennsylvania State Lunatic Hospital in Harrisburg shows that in the decade between 1880 and 1890, the majority of patients at that hospital never came home they died in institutional care. As McGovern shows, these institutions particularly appealed to the already overburdened working-class American families during the growth of industrial capitalism. Asylums promised humane care and hospice for elderly and disabled loved ones who could not themselves work under demanding industrial conditions. Superintendents accepted these patients, charging either families or the local office of the poor for their care. Though its application varied by context, the label insanity and the practice of forced institutionalization were weapons for social control wielded against many already disenfranchised people in the U.S. Beginning with St. Elizabeth's in D.C. in the years after the Civil War, some asylums incarcerated both white and black Americans. Other asylums were segregated or reserved only for white patients. Often, it was a privilege of whiteness to be insane rather than criminal. Still others, like Blackwell's Island Asylum, primarily incarcerated recently immigrated people. Even as early as 1850, there were 534 immigrant patients to the 121 native-born patients on Blackwell's Island. In the final decades of the 20th century, social justice movements and more humanistic psychiatric practices issued a push towards deinstitutionalization, figured as a liberating alternative to total institutions. Today, the institutions have been replaced, more or less, by cottage systems and group homes that allow for more freedom of routine and flexible diagnoses, but these have come under harsh criticism for economic inaccessibility, leaving many people with mental illness homeless, incarcerated, or underserved, imprisoned rather than in a hospital. Today's model still leaves much of its practice up to the discretion of certified legal, municipal, and medical authorities to distinguish between psychiatric illness and criminal behavior. I pinpoint the bureaucratic procedures of intake in 19th century asylums not to highlight the asylum's unique evils or to present it as a thing of the past, but to identify those gaps where the discretion of an authority figure becomes an opportunity for enacting social control. In the case of the texts I'm looking at here, that social control is in service to the patriarchy. To return to those 19th century intake narratives, I'd like to begin with Lydia Smith and her memoir, Behind the Scenes, or Life in an Insane Asylum, which was published in 1878. Just six years after Elizabeth Packard's forced institutionalization in 1860, a stranger entered Lydia Smith's bedroom with a chloroform-soaked cloth. He had been hired by her husband. Lydia was abducted and taken to the state asylum at Kalamazoo, Michigan. She noted that the chloroform and her confusion made her seem actually insane upon arrival, landing her an award for the hospital's most violent patients. Unlike Elizabeth Packard, who, upon being institutionalized, was spoken to calmly by an asylum doctor, Lydia Smith was subjected to a subduing process, save for the most unruly new arrivals. In Smith's words, patients were first put into a bath. This is necessary and perfectly right if done in a proper way. In a most inhuman manner, I was plunged into a bath, the water of which was not quite boiling hot and held down by a strong grip on my throat until I felt a strange sensation and everything began to turn black. Her hands were then put in stocks. A belt was tied around her waist and she was thrown into a crib a square, covered box with a small space for ventilation. An attendant then put a knee on her and forced her mouth open with a wedge to pour a medicine in, knocking out five teeth in the process. Due to her bruising, she was kept out of sight for a period to hide the evidence of this violence. Once she was finally allowed outside, Smith did not experience freedom of the grounds. She wrote, The first time I was let out to grass, as they term it, And it seemed more like driving a lot of cattle or sheep out to feed than anything else. They seemed to think me one of the unruly ones, and left the restraint on me." Though Packard's socioeconomic class was just a notch higher than Smith's, Packard had the privilege of performing sanity and wealth upon arrival. Smith's husband left her immediately after dropping her off and signing the papers. She was still reeling from the chloroform, The variation in Smith's and Packard's experience shows that the intake process depended greatly on performing normativity and wealth. In the weeks after Smith's harrowing intake experience, she was able to prove her education, what she called her sanity, and her socioeconomic status. She was removed to the convalescent ward and given a sunny room and unlimited access to the grounds and gardens. The rest of Smith's narrative is a dramatic, sensational tale of abductions and murder plots within the asylum. From her bedroom, she overheard the superintendent in the hall saying that it would not do for Smith to leave this institution alive, lest she report on the horrors she saw. In the following weeks, Smith craftily blocked her keyhole and air vent, through which she was certain the doctors were pumping chloroform. She threw the doctor's noxious-smelling flowers out the window, which he sent with the instruction to breathe deeply. She spat out all of the drugs that she was fed, and overheard the superintendent claiming to have fed her enough poison to kill ten men. The narrative comes to a head when, one night, smoke and the smell of death wafted through her open window. Smith remarked upon the recent disappearance of her two friends, and how suspicious it was to have the furnace lit at this time of night. As fantastic and spectacular as these aspects of Lydia Smith's tale may seem, I have no intention to cast doubt upon them. It is clear that Smith's drugged, forced incarceration and the subsequent violence she witnessed put her on high alert for the smell of chloroform. Her concern for her missing friends is perfectly in line with the fact that the hospital hid her from sight after intake when her body bore the bruises of its violence. The superintendent's absolute power made her rightfully suspicious of her panoptic institution. Smith's experience of intake came to define her suspicions, which, perhaps, ensured her survival. Of course, not all institutionalized women were able to preserve their experiences in writing. Packard and Smith's memoirs are complemented and deepened by the archives left behind from other asylums. For example, a folder of intake forms and paperwork from Pittsburgh's Dixmont Insane Hospital. The hospital was emptied during deinstitutionalization and later demolished, but two boxes of paperwork are preserved in the Debtree archives at the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh. Whereas later intake documents from the 1920s required detailed examinations and family histories in line with growing trends of psychoanalysis and eugenics, forms from Packard and Smith's era are sparse. They ask for a husband's word, a doctor's discretion, and a signature on a bond for private payment. In tall, spidery handwriting on an intake form from 1878, one man fills in the blanks between the physician's signature on a request for admission and certificate of insanity. I, John Smith of Allegheny County in the County of Allegheny, State of Pennsylvania, a husband of Kate Smith, the patient above named, do hereby request that she, the said Kate Smith, be admitted as a patient into the Western Pennsylvania Hospital. This form takes up merely one page and does not ask about Kate's symptoms, needs, or treatment plan. Behind the first form, John Smith signed a longer form promising to pay $5 a week for Kate's boarding indefinitely as well as any fees incurred by her death or behavior should she damage any hospital property. Let me reiterate, upon intake Kate's doctor and husband did not formally plan for her individual symptoms or needs, but they did make a financial plan for her death or in case she damaged the furniture. For those who were not brought in by a family member or guardian, the bond paperwork was filled out by an administrator at the city's office of the poor. The rest of the folder from the Dixmont Insane Hospital contains paperwork much like the Smiths, as well as some forms from the early 1920s that evidence a massive change in intake practices. The 1923 application for admission is a bona fide packet. It begins by asking the guardian, relative, or friend of the patient for a full description of that person's demographics, as well as a short answer asking, why do you think he or she is mentally ill? In answering this question, state facts on which your opinion is based. The rest of the intake packet asks for the contact information of a responsible friend, the results of a physician's examination, the signature of a judge, two pages of questions on the patient's history, a financial agreement, and an affidavit. Lines of red text stamped across one of the forms declare, note, physicians must invariably make oath before a justice of the peace, otherwise this paper is not legal. These forms are a far cry from John Smith's signature on his wife's 1878 certificate of insanity. In the archive, I was methodically, delicately turning over these forms and taking pictures in between. Turn the page, read, stand, snap a photo, sit, turn, read, stand, snap, sit, the asynchronous archive dance that was also being performed by the woman at the next table. When a scrap fell out from between the formal paperwork I was holding, a torn-off edge of a very yellowed page. On one side, in blotchy, nearly illegible ink, someone scribbled, as best as I can make out, order for the discharge of Barba Kuseni, January 3rd, 77. On the other, an even sloppier pencil, it reads with no punctuation, Doctor, if this man's wife is fit to be discharged, let him take her home, otherwise keep her. I was there to look at intake forms, but this haphazard memo stunned me for a moment. It's rare that 19th century asylum superintendents addressed criteria for a discharge. And perhaps this is why I was surprised. The little scrap of paper with its hurried handwriting showed the carelessness with which Barbara's caretakers made decisions about her life, the way that doctors and husbands exchanged women from one patriarchal institution to another. When patients were lucky enough to survive the institution, and Packard's narrative notes a high number of suicides, unnatural deaths, and lifelong incarcerations, they were put back in the hands of their legal guardians. This was particularly true of women patients, like Packard, who were again in the hands of their abusive husbands, incarcerated in their own homes. Packard spent her last few years at the asylum, staging protests and collecting the narratives of other patients, which she published in the final chapters of her first volume. She was, at times, given the option to go home if she would release her land to her husband in writing. In other words, she admitted defeat in the legal dispute that led to her incarceration in the first place. Packard rejected it on principle. After many years in the institution, she was finally sent home with her husband and son. Smith, similarly, attempted to leave the institution with her brother's signature, but the superintendent turned down her request because her husband was paying for her stay. Smith ultimately found her way out with the help of her son. The lack of formal design for the discharge process left the practice up to the discretion of doctors and husbands. It thereby made room for economic, patriarchal, and eugenic concerns to override patient well-being. In all of these cases, it was more financially lucrative for the authorities in question to keep these women incarcerated, and so they did for as long as they could. There were some successes in this story, Packard and Smith went home, and Packard's legal battle earned some recognition for patients and women's rights. The folder of intake forms from Dixmont shows significant change between the 1870s and 1920s, favoring family history and patient interviews over authority discretion. However, we cannot tell these stories as a triumph over a single moment of historical violence. The women could still only leave with the permission of a male family member, and the change in forms reflects a different form of institutionalized violence. Pseudoscientific eugenics based on family histories and demographics. As scholars and activists in and of our modern institutions remind us, psychiatric needs are still criminalized in practice across the U.S. The rise of asylums is only one moment in a long, vexed history of mental health care in the U.S. that has consistently failed to serve some of the most vulnerable people. We need these memoirs and documents not only to acknowledge and avoid past miscarriages of justice, but to recognize that institutions like psychiatric hospitals were built to sustain a white patriarchy, and that the operations of that patriarchy turned what was intended to be a utopic solution for psychiatric patients into a carceral nightmare. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19 Podcast or get in touch with us at C19 Podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.